Now here's, before we even started this, before we even started talking about doing this series about two months ago, I, uh, in, in prayer, I felt like the Holy Spirit asked me, what does the gospel cost you? And when the Holy Spirit asked me that, I knew he was not saying, um, what do you need to pay to earn? Because I cannot earn what Christ has done. You cannot uh, earn what Christ has done. I knew he was not asking me to pay him back for what he did for me. Um, and in fact, what I wanted to do, what I wanted to do, which is I think what we all tend to do when we, get, when we start, when the Holy Spirit begins to ask us stuff, is it's not like he doesn't know the answer, Right? So it's not like he's asking us to lay out something for him that he's not aware of. And what I wanted to do as a Westerner is I wanted to become a reductionist. And I wanted to begin to reduce that question to something very manageable and to something that I've accomplished. I've wanted to, I wanted to use the, and I've heard people say this, well, the gospel has cost me pornography. Or the gospel has cost me the right to lust. Or the gospel has cost me pre- or extramarital sex. The gospel has... But the question was not, what has it freed me from? You with me? The question was, what does it cost me? And I think when we begin to talk about giving more, a good question to ask is, what does the, cost, the gospel cost you? Not what has it freed you from. It's all freedom. Because in what it costs us is freeing us from our idols. But what does it cost you daily? I think another reason we like to reduce that down to, uh, to a point-by-point list is because here's the deal. As Westerners, we're all about the destination and we really hate the journey. Right? If you look at the world that we live in, it's all about getting there faster. It's about getting it accomplished. It's about getting it done. Why? So we can move on to what we really want to do. But here's the way it seems like God works. When he asks us to be holy like he is holy, no matter how holy you are, guess what he's going to ask you again? Or he's going to tell you, be holy. And then you're going to try to be more holy. And guess what he's going to tell you again? Be holy. And the point is, there is no list you can check off. In fact, I wish I could go to the Bible and find out what does it mean to give more and it had a five-point list that I could just check off. But I promise you this. As God begins to deal with you on what that might look like for you to give more, after you get used to giving more and it becomes redundant and it becomes non-sacrificial, guess what he's going to ask you to do? Give more. And then it's gonna, and he's going to ask you to give more. He's going to ask you to give more. Why? Because God needs it? No. But two things happen when we give from a point of sacrifice. One, his kingdom is being forward. His people are being blessed. And those who have not had a chance to know about him, know about him through that. But I think the other one is, is he is loosening our grip from that which steals our affections. And I think that's really the purpose. Because he doesn't need it. He He could drop it from heaven to do all the work that we do with giving more. Okay, and this is what I, uh, see here, switch my notes around. This is what I mean by reducing things when we're reductionists. You ever, y'all ever heard that great commandment, do not take the Lord's name in vain? You ever heard that? Yeah. If you've ever looked at the top 10, that's kind of a weird commandment. 
if you think about that in the way we've been taught it. Right? It's don't steal, don't murder, don't have, an, don't have adultery, and don't cuss. Really? Really? As if Moses and God were sitting there talking, he's like, you know what, I bet in the 21st century, there are going to be these people who are going to like to say, God dang it, God darn it, or the, you know, the other. So let's throw that in there to make the top ten. Now guess what? You know, what's, what, why, you know why we did that is because that's easy to manage. I can feel like I've accomplished. But that command has nothing to do with cussing. What that command has to do with is to say that if you were back then a follower of Yahweh or today a follower of Jesus, do not live your life in such a way. In other words, do not claim to be a follower of him and live your life in such a way that it defames his name. But that's hard. That's hard. Or uh, don't commit adultery on your spouse. Easy. Can check that one off. And then Jesus comes along and says, uh, how about if you've lusted, you've already done that? It's a journey. We're just not going to get there because God is continually working on us to loosen our hands from that which still our affection from him and to advance his kingdom. That brings us to giving more. When I say giving more, if you're like me, the first thing that hit your mind was money. Right? Give more means give more money. And so immediately we begin to, this is what we've done in the church, we have reduced this idea of giving more to the tithe. And then we get in this amazing debate that really shows our intellect that it's either 10% gross or net. And if I give gross, I'm a little more holy than you. And we've dumbed it down. Why? So we can get God off our back, we can check our box, and then go after what it is we want to go after. But what if giving more was all-encompassing? What if it was holistic? What if for you, some of you, giving more, God was saying, hey, you know what? There's some things that suck you away from me. And so what I want you to begin to do is reduce your standard of living so that those around you can be affected by the wealth I've given you. What if for some of you, he didn't ask you to reduce your standard of living? In fact, he said something like this. He said, you've got four kids and you've got six bedrooms. Why don't you fill another one? You live in a city of homeless people. Austin is a very popular place for homeless people, and here's what we do. Here's how we reduce it. We're supposed to be friends to the homeless, right? We'll go on one of our grill outs, and we'll put our arm around a homeless guy, and we'll say, Matthew, meet my new friend so-and-so, to which, if I'm in a bad mood, I would say, you are a liar because they are not your friend. I mean, Facebook standards, maybe. Because, see, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to, after I leave my friend, I'm going to go home. I'm going to watch my favorite sports team on my flat panel television, crack open a cold one, and when the cold front comes in, I'm going to say a quick prayer for guy on the street. I don't do that for friends. See, a friend is somebody I would jump up, I would grab a couple of heavy coats and a couple of heavy blankets, and I would rush down there because my heart is bleeding for him. Give more. I think what God is wanting us to do. I don't know what that might look like for you. I don't know where it is that you are holding on to. That God might be wanting to. Maybe yours starts off as simple as in your marriage you have been dedicated to winning every argument. 
right? No one's done that. And God say, give more by letting go of that so that your marriage can mend. See, the truth is when we read, when we live in or read the Bible in a reductionist mode, we live our lives in such a way that all we have to do is check the box to get God off our backs and then we can live the blessed lives that he's destined us to live, right? Isn't that what it's about? I, th- I think you can reduce, I think you can take giving and I think you can find there's two types of giving. This is in your notes. The first type of giving is token giving. Now, as much as we hate the law, this this type of giving is motivated by the idea of keeping the law while still feeding the flesh. Right? Isn't this what the prophets accused Israel of? They did all the check the boxes but they did it in such a way they could feed the flesh. Here's what that would look like. You come up with, based off whatever, the way your parents taught you, school taught you, or whatever, you come up with your idea of safety, security, and pleasure. And you've got that idea, and for some reason we get in our head that God wants us, and that's the reason he died is so we could experience that here in the West. And so what we try to do is figure out how to do that 10% box and still manage this. Does that make sense? So we still want to keep the law, but we also want to feed the flesh. So we are going to spend our time figuring out how to make this happen. So I see God, look what I did for you. Pat me on the back. And I can still, after I walk away from church, experience this. This form of giving allows me to rely on self. It's not a faith act. It might be hard at first, but it becomes ritualistic. It becomes easy to do, and I really don't have to rely on God for it. In fact, in case God doesn't come through, this is wisdom, right? In case God doesn't come through, I can rely on me because I've done enough. I've saved enough. I've got enough. I can rely on me even if God doesn't come through, and I still get to check the box. Number three, this form of giving supports my idols, and that kind of reiterates what I said the first time. Token giving, this is motivated by the idea of keeping the law while still feeding the flesh. This form of giving allows me to rely on self, and this form of giving supports my idols. The second form of giving, which is what I think God is drawing us to, is called sacrificial giving. This takes me beyond the law and calls me to sacrifice myself. This calls me to actually believe that the greatest pleasure in the world, the greatest security in the world, the greatest success in the world is not what I can accomplish for myself, but what Christ has already accomplished for me and to find greatest joy in that. This form of giving forces me to rely on faith. I've heard, I've heard people say that When it's all said and done, if we die and this whole Christianity thing, this whole God thing, this whole Jesus thing is not real, at least we lived a life. But Paul says something very different. Paul says if we lived the life called for and we find out none of this is true, we are to be pitied among all men. That means to live in faith to such an extent, if this thing isn't real, our lives sucked. Yeah. Because we've extended ourselves so far, as as Brandon said in his blog this week, we've given till it hurts. That if there is no comfort in him, we fall. That's faith. 
this form of giving confronts my idols, which kind of reiterates the first one. See, what we need to understand is that if we search the scriptures from Abraham to Jesus and from Jesus to the early church, there are many different things that different followers of God or Christ were marked with, but the one continual marking of a follower of Christ was sacrificial giving of not just finances, but of everything that drew their affections away from God. Have you ever thought about the way Jesus did altar calls? Right, he never, I mean, he'd be fired today. It's like he didn't know that the key was to put butts in the seat. It's like he didn't get that. In fact, one time he gave a message that must have been so inspiring that tons of people were following him. So he kind of turned around and said, well, maybe you didn't get it. Here, here's what you need to do. You need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Turns around a little bit, turns back, and there's 12 left. And then he asks them, where are you go? Aren't you going to go? And they're dumbfounded. It's not like they're gung-ho. They're like, I don't even know where to go if not you. This is his type of altar call. How about when other people are following him, he turns around and says, hey, you might, before you do this, you might want to count the cost first. It's like we've made church too hard and Christianity too easy. And Jesus seemed to flip-flop that. It seemed like from the very beginning, he let them know, if you are going to do this thing, if you are going to follow me, like that little phrase, take up your cross, that doesn't mean living through getting the Ten Commandments taken off the school walls. That means living a life, living the gospel in such a way that it costs you. So here's the main question. It's in your notes. We should not be asking... How much more can I give? We should not be asking how much more can I give. To that, we may base the answer on our idea of safety, security, and success. We should not be asking how much more can I give. To that, we may base that answer on our idea of safety, security, and success. Rather, the question we should ask is how much do I withhold for the sake of safety, security, and success. Have you ever noticed how that, and this isn't a blanket statement, so I can't say this all the time. Have you ever noticed that it seems like the people in the church who want to adopt can't afford it, but they happen to go to church with people who can't afford it but don't feel like they do want to adopt? It's almost like God wants us to rely on each other it's kind of crazy. Have you ever noticed how that the people who go to church who can afford four or five nice cars go to church with the single women who can't afford any? They're single mothers. It's like he wants us to depend on each other. Like he actually wants us to act like a body. But I think there's three paradigms that we have that get in the way of us giving more. Number one, don't stone me for saying this. Uh, the American dream. Somewhere in our, in our culture, we have been fed and we have bought the idea that God's greatest purpose for us is to live out the American dream while we blind ourselves to the fact that no one else outside of our borders gets to do that. We believe it's our God-given right. In, in fact, have you ever looked at the way Americans look at retirement? I'm not saying don't retire. What I'm saying is don't retire 
so that you can spend the last 20 years of your life focusing on your own indulgences. Have you ever, you ever heard the, the, the quote, God helps those who help themselves? Did you know that that quote is quoted more often as scripture by Christians than any other verse? And it's not even in the Bible. In fact, it goes against the Bible. Because if you were to look at a concept like that, it would go more like this. God helps those who helps those who can't help themselves. But somewhere we believe that we are the America, and I think God gave us this country, but we are the new promised land. We are the new chosen people. And so he's given us this concept, not called milk and honey, which seem real sticky, but called the American dream. And he's going to just give it to us for ourselves to indulge in. I think the second one uh, is, and I don't, even, I don't even know if you can reduce these to three. It might just be one, and I'm just, I've, for you know, one, two, three points, I've kind of spaced them out. Um, but the second one is blissful ignorance. Another word for this is called the suburbs. Um, now, I'm not saying move out of the suburbs. Or I'm, not, I'm not saying that. But here's, what, here's, what, here's how that whole thing started. Okay, we, we, we looked at the Mormons and thought, man, what they did in Utah was great. Let's franchise it out. Um, and, and build these suburbs which we can escape the urban life where we're confronted with poverty, where we're confronted with violence, where we're confronted with reality and hide ourselves away in our nice little plush areas and be ignorant of everything else that goes on in the world. Now, I don't believe, maybe I'm naive, that that is the reason any of us who live in the suburbs live in the suburbs. I might be wrong. But I don't, I don't think that. I think that. I think that's how it started. But here's what happens. We kind of just get sucked into it without realizing it. We become ignorant and don't even realize we're ignorant because we don't even know what's going on in the world. But I think it's so much easier to focus on self than to be confronted with that which we've really been called into. Um, and I think the third one, now that I'm making everybody feel good about themselves. Um, Merry Christmas. Uh, the third one is fear. The third one is fear. And that, that fear might be several things. That could be fear based on losing what we put our value in or what we believe gives us value. And I don't know where that comes from for each of you or even if you have that, but the truth is many of us, we've, we've just grown up. We don't, we don't even know any different. We just believe that this car, this money, this house, this job, this position, or whatever is what truly gives us value. And so if I lose that, because we all want value. We all seek value. And if I lose that, then I lose my identity. I lose who I really am. Um, I think another one is uh, fear based off of a shaky future, which goes back to the, the lack of faith deal. I mean, look at the time we're in. If God doesn't come through, I need to make sure that I've come through. I'm not saying don't use wisdom, but I think that's the excuse we'll give ourselves a lot of times not to live a life that costs or not to give more. And then I think the, the third one, which I think is really pre- uh, prevalent, uh, was for me, is fear from the past. Maybe you grew up in poverty. Maybe you grew up in uh, not having. And you don't want your kids to have that. You don't want to go through that yourself. And so you protect yourself based off of fear from the past and not repeating it by hoarding everything you've got. Here's what C.S. Lewis said when it comes to fear. I love this quote. He says, the only safe rule, not one of, the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. Our charities should pinch and hamper us. If we live at the same, I love this, if we live at the same level of affluence 
as other people who have our level of income, we are probably giving way too little. So here's the paradigm shifts that we have to have. Instead of focusing on the American dream, I think we need to focus uh, on the kingdom of God. Here's what Jesus said. He said, if you seek first the kingdom of God. And here's what seek means in that context. It does not mean if I do a lot of studying on it. It does not mean if I do a lot of reading on it. To seek first the kingdom of God means to point everything about me, my income, my job, my influence, to point everything I've got towards that. The kingdom of God. If you seek first the kingdom of God, all these things, what things? The things that we have been chasing that we really believe are going to give us value. The things that we really believe are going to give us satisfaction. The things that we keep seeking but never find. All of these things will be added to who? To those who point all of their lives towards the kingdom of God. So, so what does that look like? How do you point it towards the kingdom of God? There's this, there's this little thing that happened. A little conversation kind of between Jesus and John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the forerunner, Jesus, of the, and he was announcing this new king who was going to break through. A lot of the, the Jews thought that that meant a uh, uh, political uh, takeover. And so John is announcing this thing. And then John gets captured. Uh, and we don't have time to go into that. He gets taken to prison, and he's promised to be beheaded. So now, the one that John said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the earth. John had just said that. Now all of a sudden he's beginning to question this deal a little bit. He's beginning to wonder, this ain't worked out too good for me. It's cost me. I've lived homeless. I've eaten bugs for dinner. I've, I stink. And this is my repayment. Being beheaded. So he sends a messenger to Jesus and says, hey, look. Is this, are you really it? Because look, dude, I'm about to die. I'm not going to blow your cover. Okay, I'm just, nah, I'm just, just let me know. And Jesus responds. How does he respond? He says, tell him what have you seen and what have you seen? You've seen the gospel preached to the poor. You've seen blind eyes open, deaf ears can hear. It was not a political takeover. But it was, to sum that up, a social justice that ran into the broken, the marginalized, and the oppressed. And he said, tell them that's the proof that the kingdom has shown up. So what would it look like to literally point our lives towards the kingdom of God in that manner? The second paradigm is the greatest blessing to be treasured that will fulfill Every longing we have. The greatest blessing to be treasured is knowing God. J.I. Packer said it like this. He said, what were we made for? To know God. What aim should we have in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? To know God. What is the best thing in life? To know God. What in humans gives God the most pleasure? Knowledge of himself. Instead of aiming for blissful ignorance from the world, our goal should be knowledge of the greatness of who he is. And what you will find, he'll remove the ignorance and he will call you to run right back into that which we've ran from. 
with his knowledge. Number three, this one's deep. Remember, keep this on your mind, uh, it's not your stuff. Remember, it's not your stuff. John Calvin said this, all the blessings we enjoy are divine deposits committed to our trust on this condition that they should be dispensed for the benefit of our neighbors. You remember what God told Abraham when he said, hey, I'm gonna give you a lot of stuff or I'm gonna bless you? Remember what he told him? Why he was gonna do that? See, there's, there's something that follows up with that. We like to just focus on the, hey, he's gonna give me stuff. But there was a follow-up. He said, I'm gonna give you this stuff. I'm gonna bless you. Why? So that you will be a blessing to the nations. See, I firmly believe that if the stuff that God gives us does not turn into blessings for those who don't have, they become idols that we can't let go of. Which is why God says, hey, I want to show the world me through what you have. So let go of it. And then he told Israel, he said, there's going to come a day. He says this in Deuteronomy. There's going to come a day where you're going to begin to focus on your stuff. And you're going, to be, you're going to begin to look at all you've accomplished. And you're going to begin to think, hey, I did pretty good. I've done well. Look what I've gained through my hard work, through my education, through my ability. I deserve this. And God gives a warning to them. He says, basically, I'm summarizing this. Not only have I given you the stuff, but I've given you the very ability to get the stuff you have. See, the, the point is, it's, it's not our stuff. I want to end with this, this passage. In 2 Samuel 24, 24, David had just committed a sin. I don't have that in your notes because I knew if you're like me, you're going to rush to this verse and you're like, ah, oh, I get the punchline. Uh, but I'm just going to read a part of it. In 2 Samuel 24, 24, David had just committed a, uh, a sin and he is going to offer a burnt offering to God. We don't have time to get into what all, all that means. And so he goes to buy the stuff. He goes to get the stuff. And the person he's buying the stuff from to perform the offering, the bull and the, whatever they, they build it on, finds out he's the king. And he says, David, you can have it for free because you're the king, right? I mean, that's what we do, right? Have you ever wondered like on Grammy night while all the stars with all the money get all the free stuff? Yeah, well, that's what this guy's doing. He's saying, David, you can have it. Let me give you the best bull. Let me give you the best stuff. You build your altar. You sacrifice it. And here's David's response. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. What if in 2010 we began to look at the way we live our lives, all of our life, not our tithe, gross or net, but all of our life is an offering to God. And we decided that we were not going to offer our lives in such a way that it didn't cost us anything. But it would be a life that costs. Adam Clark, he summarized this verse before I read the statement and close. You all remember what James said pure religion is? I want, I, want, I want us to get this picture of religion. Do you remember what James said about pure religion? Anybody remember that? Somebody? Nobody? Yeah, what was that? Orphans and widows, the oppressed, the broken, the needy. Think of, when I read the word religion right here, this is what I want you to think of. This is what Adam Clark says. Define, explaining 2 Samuel 24, 24. He said, he who has a religion that costs him nothing 
has a religion that is worth nothing. Let's pray.